Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by Coors Light. He is Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also interact with us on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. Today, Wednesday and Thursday, we will be having BBKL at a very special time, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And then Friday, the show will return to its regularly scheduled time at noon Eastern. We're accommodating to some of the changes in terms of the schedule with mandatory minicamp. And that's what we're going to get into over these next 60 minutes. We'll get to your phone calls. We'll get to your tweets. And Paul, let's start with day one mandatory minicamp. One of the biggest takeaways I found from what Pat Shermer had to say, specifically Jabril Peppers as well as Sterling Shepard, who spoke to the media shortly after that, was the competitive nature of minicamp despite the fact that because of CBA rules, they can't be physical, they can't hit, they can't tackle. So it's hard to simulate the competitive nature that you need to get yourself ready for training camp and so forth. But Jabril Peppers has brought the trash talking to the field. Sterling Shepard, Saquon Barkley have responded (laughs) on the offensive side of the ball. And Pat Shermer was asked about, well, you know, do you get nervous that things are just going to be taken up a notch and these guys are not going to be able to handle themselves? But he actually says, listen, it's a positive sign. This brings out the best in the offense. It brings out the best in the defense. And, you know, he seems to like what he's seen in the early results of minicamp basically a carryover of what he's observed in OTAs thus far. Well, that's all it can be because we're in shirts and shorts uh, as we're watching this stuff and, and, you know, no pads, no hitting. I mean, the question, the first question at the press conference was very indicative of the situation. He was asked about the young defensive line and how they're coming along. And he looked at the the questioner and he said, okay, but uh, (laughs) we can't hit. You know, there's really not much to say until we start the hit. It looks like they're getting it. It looks like they understand what their roles are, but we really won't know. And I keep trying to tell people that, and we've talked about this now for several weeks since OTA started. You know, there there's a sampling of the pudding here. That's all you got, a sampling of the pudding. To this point, everything the Giants have done have checked all the boxes. This is a much more talented roster. This is a much better football team. It's a younger team. It's a more together team. It's a much more energized team. Those things are all true. But, but, no hitting, which is the true test. The preseason games, even a truer test. And then the production during the regular season will really tell the story of the 2019 New York Giants. Nothing that we see now, no matter how promising it may look, means nothing in September. Yeah, you can only read so much into this time of the year. That's pretty much what I always say, because you're not necessarily duplicating what you're going to see come training camp in the regular season. When, to your point, Paul, they put on the pads. When the offensive linemen and defensive linemen get to hit. When the wide receivers in the corners also are physical with one another, and the corners are able to involve themselves in press coverage. That was one of the things, actually, that Pat Shermer mentioned today, because he was once again asked about the development of the young secondary, and it is an extremely young secondary. Even sure. Jabril Peppers has only had two years in the league. Antoine Bethay is the grandfather of the group, and no disrespect to Antoine Bethay, but compared to the rest of the crew, I mean, he topples them and then some. 14 years. Yeah, with all the experience that he brings to the table. So he was asked about, well, how do you monitor what you've seen out of them day in and day out? And he goes, listen, there's only so much that you can take away from specifically the cornerback position because they can't even press coverage. 
They can't get physical with the wide receivers at the line because of the rules. But despite that, Paul, just from observing practice, the guys are active. You got to give them credit for that. The point that I wanted to make to some of the folks who were standing out uh, at the presser and listening to Coach Shermer, they, they seem very perplexed and puzzled by the fact that he said both the offense and the defense have looked good. Well, here's why. Remember, it's basically the skill positions and the passing game that we're able to easily evaluate during these drills. I think you would agree with that, right? We've already discussed this ad nauseum. Okay, well, if a quarterback makes a pinpoint throw that's really good, check mark, good. Route was run, good. But now the defensive back closes and makes a sensational play to knock the ball away. So it's a good throw, it's a good route. Those are offensive grades. But now the defense gets an even better grade because they knocked it away and made the ball incomplete. So it's absolutely possible for the offense and defense to look good on the same play. It doesn't have to be one side wins and the other side loses. What it can be is a degree of winning. The offense can win because they made a good play, but the defense made an even better play. So both sides get something positive out of it. And that's, I think, what's so hard for some people to understand, especially when they read some of the comments coming out of practice. And they're like, oh, you know, the defense was way ahead of the offense. The quarterbacks weren't completing enough of passes. That doesn't mean they didn't throw the ball well. It doesn't. This is why it takes a knowledgeable, experienced, and educated eye to watch all of practice like a coach would to understand how to properly evaluate it. If you're simply thinking that the pass was incomplete, that's like some clown looking at a baseball box score seeing a single. He doesn't know if it was a bunt single, a bad hop single, yep. or a laced uh, ball into center field. Well, context is what you have to about. understand. Yeah, and, and 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 that's the bad news about Twitter and the, some of the stuff that you folks are reading. You're not getting the full body of work, the full picture. You're not getting it. It's like tomato sauce without the oregano and the garlic powder and stuff. It's just, it's not good. It's watery. It's, it's not good. All right, so let's put that aside for just one second. Two eye-openers in today's practice, besides the fact that the, the back seven closed on a number of passes and knocked a number of them down, okay? Aside from that, eye-openers. Daniel Jones threw the nicest ball of the day. It was a right fly pattern down the sideline to Reggie White. Must have been about 50 yards in the air. It was a bomb perfectly laid in there. Rainbow bomb just right in the breadbasket. It couldn't have been more perfect. Best, best play of the day. Really, really fun to watch. The other one, Daniel Jones on an RPO, took off around the right end, found daylight, and scampered down the sideline, and he turned on the Jets because everybody was kind of hooting and hollering at him because it was such a cool play, and there was so much wide-open space. To see the quarterback have that much real estate in front of him, he started taking off, and he went about 40 or 50 yards before he finally slowed down and turned around. Shermer said, yeah, he would have scored, obviously. And we saw him take a 70-yarder in college and run for a touchdown. A number of big running plays He is college. capable of doing that. And what Pat Shermer said is, that RPO play is in the playbook, but they would only pull it out in certain circumstances and situations, and and that he's got the mobility, Jones, to run that if in a given spot they wanted to do it. So those were the 
the key takeaways of everything that we saw today. Yeah, Cody Latimer also had a really nice play up the right sideline, uh, too, that was just perfectly thrown, and he was able to haul By Alex Tanny, I believe. Yeah, Tanny, who I would say I thought had a really productive practice. He may he have been the most the impressive ball. quarterback, actually. Alex Tanny throws yeah. a very nice football. He reminds me so much of Jesse Palmer, who was a career backup in this league and just threw the prettiest passes in practice. Alex Tanny throws the ball exceptionally well. You wonder, he's such a good guy. He knows the game so well. He's got such a great coach's mentality and coach's attitude. And he throws a gorgeous spiral. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why he's bounced around so much in this league and no one's ever even given him a chance? Well, I think part of it is system. Part of it is him being with teams where they went in a young direction and brought in a young quarterback. And, you know, he was in a tough position where realistically you knew the expectations were high on the rookie quarterback or the young quarterback that was maybe in the league one or two years. And his primary goal was to be competitive in camp, but understand that he would likely have to settle for the backup role. So, you know, that's a big part of football. You wind up with a team, you think the opportunity is in front of you, all of a sudden the team brings in another veteran or they draft a guy and the dynamics of the quarterback room completely change. But I think you got to give somebody like that credit for hanging around the league as long as he has thus far and also accepting his role and still being competitive because there's a there's room for an Alex Taddy in today's NFL. Those backup quarterbacks are extremely valuable who have some experience because you just never know when you need to turn to them depending on how a game plays out. One other note related to your point about the RPO play with Daniel Jones. When Pat Shermer was speaking to the media, he also made it very clear that play is in the playbook, but it also depends on who the quarterback is under center in which they would give the green light for that play to take place. So that's something else that was somewhat related to what he was talking about. But Daniel Jones does bring those legs with him. And you mentioned, Paul, we saw it in college time and time again. Even Sterling Shepard was asked about the Daniel Jones run play. And Sterling said, you know, he and the rest of his teammates were excited to see what Daniel Jones could bring to the table. But they also were familiar with what Daniel Jones had done in college. Shepard said he watched some tape of Daniel Jones once he was drafted. He was very familiar with his ability to wreak havoc on the ground and extend plays. So, you know, these teammates are not necessarily exposed to something that they already did not necessarily have any knowledge of. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You can also hit us up on Twitter, hashtag GiantsChat. Let's open up the phone lines. We've got Doug, who is in Rochester. He gets us going on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Doug? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Hi. Hey, um, hey, I wanted to talk about the last season, about the offense. Um, A lot lot of times people, we've been talking about the defense couldn't stop nobody. But some games, the offense scored in the first half and didn't score like three points in the second half. So I kind of figured that has to stop too. The offense has to come out in the second half and score some points too to keep that defense off the field some. And you think it's capable for the offense this year with new guys online that they can take like five to six minute drives and score touchdowns and not field goals because field goals are winning games. Well, it's all about the offensive line, my friend, because once your offensive line is fortified and we think that the Giants starting five is going to be this year, you now have an entirely different karma and dynamic because much like what the Cowboys have done in recent years, although their defense is certainly so much improved now, I would not consider it a suspect D at this point. They're good now. Yeah. But but a yeah. few years ago, when they had DeMarco Murray and when they started out with Ezekiel Elliott, 
The idea was that the offense would control the tempo, control the flow of the game, control the narrative of the game so that the defense could not be exposed. If you think of it this way, Late in the fourth quarter last year, the Giants blew four games in the second half of the season because the defense failed to keep teams off the scoreboard in the final three minutes of the game. Well, now, think of it this way. If the Giants' offensive line is as good as we think it's going to be, they'll be able to get first downs and run out the clock. And when Eli gets them the lead in the fourth quarter, or if they're holding the lead, they'll be able to milk the clock and not give the ball back and put their young and experienced defense on the field yeah. in a position where they might lose the game. This is yeah. football 101, my friend. It's amazing to me how many people don't understand the game. But that yeah. is one way, that is one philosophy where you can overcome or, or kind of hide a questionable area of your team or a deficient area of your team. By, by using a stronger offensive line, you run that four-minute offense, and all of a sudden, you don't have to kick the ball back to the other guys with a minute and 37 to go. Well, yeah, I think the goal so, is... Gonna, the goal okay, is... Yeah, well, well Doug, Doug... I want to ask you throw out another question, you guys. Well, Doug, um, Doug, before you continue there, Doug, before you continue I, there... I this is like a lost cause here. Doug, hold on a second. Before you continue, I wanted to stay on the topic of what you brought up. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point in terms of time of possession. The one thing, though, I will add is that the goal is to score. The goal is not to milk the clock. You can have teams that win time of possession and they don't put any points on the board to show for it. So the key is you want to finish drives. You don't just want to say, well, we're able to put together a five-minute drive. You want to be able to score a touchdown. So the key for the Giants this season, it's not so much winning time of possession. It's consistently finishing drives with touchdowns as opposed to field goals because then at least even if your defense is having trouble getting off the field at least you have the confidence that if you have to get into an offensive clinic you can go back and forth because you're finishing drives and not settling for three points okay uh, can i ask you another question sure. real quick absolutely uh, um the defensive line um i know uh, Dexter lawrence hasn't had um no experience on the field but um McIntosh hasn't been out there that much, but um, Hill and, and McIntosh and Lawrence and Tomlin, you think those guys are capable of putting up 20 sacks between all four of them this year? Which four again? You said McIntosh, Dexter, Lawrence, and who else? Um, Hill, Hill and Tomlin, the four defensive line guys. 20 sacks out of the between four. The, between those four, you think they could put up uh, all four of them. Uh, between the four, they could put up 20 sacks this year. Possibly. Between that line. Possibly. I, I think that's a bit on the high side, in my opinion. I mean, B.J. Hill had five and a half last year. B.J. Hill also had three in one game. Let's not forget about that. I'm not mm -hmm. trying to take away his ability to get up to quarterback, but really one game made up all of his sacks. Lawrence, I think, has the capacity to certainly get after the quarterback, but his numbers also fluctuated in college. Uh, Tomlinson, to me, is not a big sack guy. I think he's more of push the pocket, stop the run. And, you know, R.J. McIntosh, he's got to show that he could stay on the field and be an impactful player before we start counting up how many sacks. So, to me, 20 from those four, that seems very high. I, I agree with Lance. I think it's a high number. 
Do I think it's impossible? No. That's why I said possibly when you first said it. I do think it's on the high side. I think 15 is a much more yeah, realistic 15. number. Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, 15. I was thinking more like 15 would be good. If those guys who, you know, stretch out and get 15, that would really help towards the sack, you know, towards the sack. So that's capable for them, I think, 15. 20 may be a little bit too much, yeah. Okay, thanks, guys. All right, Doug. Appreciate the phone call. Right, I think 15 15- would be a pleasant surprise and would certainly be a positive for the team overall. I think if you get 10 to 12 out of that group, I think that's a more realistic goal for this season. But you get 15, 15 to me would be the icing on the cake if those four defensive tackles could produce 15 because, I mean, keep this in mind, Paul. We're talking about a team that had 30 sacks overall. You get 15 from the four defensive tackles? I think that's extremely encouraging. Here's the big variable and what makes this question almost impossible to answer. We don't even know how they're going to be utilized in the sub-packages. Playing time, yeah. And until we know how they're going to be utilized in the sub-packages in particular, which are the obvious passing downs, it's almost impossible to even take a wild stab at this. We just don't know. For all we know, maybe two of those guys won't even be on the field in the sub Well, and I think that was why the question was framed with four guys. You're looking at the total as opposed to you yeah. can't expect them each to get five sacks so you get to 20 or each to get you know three. I think, to me, realistically, Hill and Lawrence have the most upside in getting sacks. That doesn't mean that McIntosh and Tomlinson are incapable, but if you're going to... Talk about a total. I would think Paul Lawrence and Hill are going to do most of the heavy lifting in that department. Yeah, I think that's fair. But once again, if that defensive tackle group overall gives double-digit sacks to the Giants, I think that is a huge step in the right direction. Because Hill got five and a half last year, and outside of him, you didn't have a great deal of production from the defensive line overall, but specifically from the interior defensive linemen. So if they could get those numbers up as a group to that 10-11 mark, I think that would certainly give James Betcher a little bit more faith that they can see an improvement across the board in terms of the sack department because it's not the end-all be-all. Part of it is quarterback hits. Part of it is just applying consistent pressure. But it is also no coincidence that the teams atop the sack totals also, more likely than not, at least are relevant in the playoff discussion. And the two teams that were number one, they were tied for number one in sacks last season, was the Steelers and the Chiefs. One team made the playoffs, one team just missed. And Pittsburgh missed by the chinny-chin-chin. So, once again, you put yourself in a position where you're getting in that 45 to 50 barometer for sack totals, you're sitting pretty because what you're doing is you're probably making up for a secondary worst case scenario that's not very good and you're complementing and rounding out some of the other aspects of your team. Oh, I'll give you a number I always give to people. I always say that the bar is 42. 42 sacks to me is is the goal because that should get you into right about the bottom half of the top 10 in sacks for teams during the course of the season. And, you know, in my mind, that's that's what delineates you from being a quality pass rush. 42 is the number for me. Now, is that set in stone? No. Obviously, there are other factors involved. Yeah, How much do you apply pressure? How good is your secondary coverage? Because you'll get those coverage sacks all the time. Well, you won't get them all the time, but you know what I'm talking about. It's something we talk about a lot. 
So the number is not written in stone. You could still have a decent pass rush, I guess, and have 37 sacks. I guess that's still possible or plausible. But just for the sake of simplicity, my target number is usually 42. No, and I like that target. I, I think if you could get to 40 or more, that's a good position to be in. Uh, 42 is, to me, a fair target, especially when you look at where the top pass rushers usually rank. And I'm talking about teams. I'm not talking about individuals each and every season. I'm bringing up the numbers from last year. I mean, just to look at the 30 sacks overall, just to give you an idea, let's see. This is how many players recorded at least a half a sack last season. You had Ogletree with one. Goodson had a half. Webb had one. Thomas had one. Michael Thomas, I'm referring to. B.J. Hill, five and a half. Kareem Martin, one and a half. Lorenzo Carter, four. Kerry Wren, one and a half. Tay Davis had two. Vernon had seven. Okay, so that gets us to 10. Morrow had one. That's 11. Chandler had one. That's 12. Mario Edwards Jr. had two, 13. And Connor Barwin had one. 14 different players recorded at least half a sack in 2018. Now, that's great. There's no rule of thumb you need this amount of players. It's nice when you spread the wealth, Paul, because then the opposition has to account for multiple players. But when I'm reading off those 14 players, we're talking about a bulk of them had anywhere between a half and one and a half sacks. So, you know, that's not necessarily threatening an opposing offense. Well, boy, we got a game plan for these eight guys because they each have at least half a sack. Well, let me just give you a little perspective on this, all right? The 2011 team that won the Super Bowl, okay, the Giants had 48 sacks that year, and JPP had 16 and a half by himself because that's what happens when you have the one superstar stud pass rusher. He's going to get high into the double digits, and he is going to warp or dilate, if you will, the team's sack numbers. Because after that, nine out of OC, five apiece out of Tolleson and Tuck, four out of Canty, three and a half out of Kiwanuka, and then a few sprinkles the rest of the way. But the point is, the second guy was OC at nine. You, you know, you if you have one major double-digit sack guy, that puts you in position where you possibly could get to the 40 or 42 plateau, if you will. Depends on which, which one of us you, you want to go with. But to get into that ballpark, you're going to have to have one guy who's going to be 14, 15, somewhere in that vicinity. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard, honestly, to reach that benchmark. Well, but the numbers you just read prove that you had one double-digit guy, Paul, but you nearly had two. I mean, OC had nine. You'll, you'll be happy with that. I mean, if you get another guy in that 9-10 well, ballpark... But that's a team that won the Super Bowl. That's my point. You know, if yeah. you want to be considered a team that's got a formidable pass rush and you want to lean on that pass rush as one of your foundations of success, you're going to have to be, have to be in the mid-40s or higher. I'm bringing up Kansas City, as I mentioned, was tied with Pittsburgh last and year. And I know they're outliers, by the way, because what, the Patriots had 30-something last year? Correct. New I mean, England. there yeah, are outliers. I get it. There's always outliers. But, yes. but hold on, and I'm glad you brought that up. Twelve teams make the playoffs, six in each conference. Let's not make it sound like three, a quarter of the teams or so, are outliers. You maybe get one, Paul, to your point. Right. Where you had 30 to 32 sacks, and they just have a prolific offense, or they've had a lot of turnovers. They're an opportunistic team, so the turnover differential's through the roof, and it helps shorten the field and make up for what they were lacking in the pass rush department. The Chiefs, though, 
just as a means of comparison to the Giants in 2011 that you threw out because the Chiefs were one of the best teams in terms of getting to the quarterback last season. They had, as a unit, 52 sacks. So they had Chris Jones, 15 and a half, breakout season for Chris Jones. D. Ford, who is now with the San Francisco 49ers, he had 13. So there you go. You had two guys who were double-digit threats for Kansas City. That means that they had two guys account for 28 and a half of their 52 sacks. So more than half of their sacks came from two individuals. Yeah, when you get two guys with at least 10, that's going to make it extremely reasonable to at least get into that 40 range because half the battle is won by two guys that are such serious threats. The Giants... I mean, they're trying to get to see if they can get one guy in the double-digit range at this point. So, you know, that's the difference between the Giants versus Pittsburgh and Kansas City last season, which were so consistently good in getting after the quarterback. 201-939-4513. You're watching and tuning into Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. It is presented by Coors Light. We're reviewing day one of mandatory minicamp, the outlook for the Giants this season, things they need to work on, and so forth. Let's head back to the lines. We check in with Jeff who is in Rhode Island. Jeff, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Hi, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Paulie, I got a couple for you. I was wondering uh, how Avery Moss is moving around out there, and uh, why is it that Kareem Martin is still on this team? We got absolutely nothing out of, out of him last year at all. Well, I think let me take the Avery Moss one. I'll let you take Kareem Martin. As far as Avery Moss, he's one of my pet projects, and I had actually talked to one of the defensive members of the coaching staff the other day, and I said, listen, He's my dark horse. I, I, I think he's got a lot of skills. I explained everything I've said to you guys on this program. And he said to me, okay, well, here's the problem. His advancement and his learning has been severely stunted by inability to stay on the field. The injuries through his first two years as a part of this organization have significantly stunted his growth and development. And his comment to me was, if he can stay on the field for the entire summer, well, then maybe we have something. But right now, he's still, in their opinion, he's still a raw player because he hasn't had enough of on-field technique experience to expand his game. Okay, I, yeah, I understand that part, but uh, is, do you think he's 100% healthy now? Right now, he is. Right now, he is. he is. Right now, he's fully healthy, and he's ready to go, and he's chopping at the bit. You can imagine two years of frustration. Sure. You know, but here's the thing. Yeah. Dave Gettleman brought him back. After two yeah. years of, of, of being washed out by, by injury, he, he was a free agent. And the Giants <clears throat> decided to offer him a deal to bring him back for a third season. He had to think in his own mind, well, listen, I haven't really done much here. Do I want to go somewhere else and have a fresh start? Right. And he thought about it, and it was decided, you know what? If Dave Gettleman's showing enough confidence and faith in him to give him a third year to try to break out, you know what? Maybe that's the right thing to do. So yeah. Gettleman, well, Gettleman obviously sees the... Uh, Gettleman, he's uh, suffering from lack of experience yes. due to being injured. Gettleman sees yeah. the tools. Otherwise, he <clears throat> wouldn't have brought him back. Well, and he also, from his mindset, yeah. he knows the system, too. If he were to start fresh, he'd have to learn now a completely new system in addition to trying to stay healthy and remain on the field. As far as Kareem Martin, 
Jeff, you're at 90 guys right now on the roster. Nobody solidified the 53. I don't think there's any harm in bringing oh. back guys and retaining guys from last season. Plus, he knows the system, and he has familiarity with James Betcher. So, you know, nobody's saying that he's solidified a role, but if you could bring guys like that into camp who can help teach some of the younger guys that they brought in, I don't think there's any downgrade in having them on the roster at this point. It seems to me we threw too much money at somebody like him, and we got nothing out of him. So uh, he's not one of my favorites. Let's put it that way. So you guys have a great day, okay? All right, Jeff. Talk to you soon. Appreciate the phone call. Thanks for weighing in. Uh, remember, you know, Kareem Martin, one year here with the Giants. Let's see what he does if he makes the team in year number two. Uh, the whole defense, I think you could say that about. You know, whenever you implement a new system, a new scheme, and you involve a lot of new players. It takes time. Sometimes it takes a season for guys to just get on the same page. And keep in mind, they're now bringing in a lot of new faces this year. But, I mean, to sit here and debate, you know, why guys are on the roster when you have the flexibility to have 90 men to compete, I, I really think we're way too early to be perhaps complaining about why somebody else is, uh, is still on the roster when they're, you know, still evaluating exactly who's going to carve out a role and so forth. And, and competition at this point, I think, is a good thing. I don't look at it as necessarily a negative. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines. We got Matt in Rockland. Matt, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you have for us? What's up, fellas? Doing right, Hi. Matt. I got a question for you. What, what, what is the reason for the major discrepancy I receive? I see in, like, these practice reports even just today, Paul, you were saying you thought it was a good day for the quarterbacks. Most of the beat writers tended to disagree, unless it was Alex Tanny. <laughs> Alex Tanny just throws a nice ball. There's no question about that. Here's what you have to understand. Um, first of all, I've, I've been doing this for 37 years, so it's a long time. I've seen a lot. Experience and knowledge play a lot into what you see in your individual lens, what you're looking for, and what you understand. I prefer to take a coach's eye. When I watch a practice, I watch the entire practice. Individual drills, the seven-on-sevens, the 11-on-elevens, and then the individual drills after that. And then the, the next set of 11 on 11. I'm looking at each section, each part of it. And when I tell you I think they had a good day overall, I'm telling you for the entire 90 minutes, they threw the ball pretty well. What you will see with many other people's comments they're strictly making comments on what was the 7-on-7 seven seven drill or what's known as the team drills, the 11-on-11s. 11 My feeling is that's a shallow way to look at it and it's an uneducated way to look at it because the coach watches the entire practice. They film and tape the entire practice from the moment those guys get out onto the field till the time they leave the field. And all of that video is reviewed by the coaching staff and by the respective units as they review how their day went. So if the coaches are going to grade the entire 90 minutes, why shouldn't I? Matt, okay? Yeah. One thing I'll say, then I'll jump off the line, guys. Uh, Pat Leonard from the Daily News needs his press pass revoked. That guy is an utter clown. Have a good day, fellas. All right, Matt. Good day well, to you. you know, we're not here to rate the job that individual media members do, but do appreciate the phone call. The one thing that I wanted to add to what you just said, Paul, you know, the other thing that I notice and I take into consideration, 
there's flags that are thrown sometimes. Sometimes it's out of the view of the media. Sometimes it's in the view of the media. That's and that's well. important because, Paul, there could be a throw that's off the mark. For example, there was a pass interference call on one of the plays I was watching from the back end view of the end zone today. And it was basically in the view of where the media was standing. So they probably saw it. But that could be a pass that falls incomplete. You could review that as... Oh, not a great throw by the quarterback, but it was impacted because the wide receiver was held by the corner or whatever it may be, and the official sure. on the back end saw that. So there are times where there may be issues on the offensive line or there may be issues at the line of scrimmage, and there's a flag noted so that the coaches on the sideline that well, are noting that, that's going to impact throws. This so is you have why, to take that into consideration. Well, this is why it takes an experienced and knowledgeable eye who is able to see everything at once. I love, I love Pat Kerwin the former uh, front office executive with the New York Jets, who was on Sirius every day, who I think is one of the most brilliant football analysts on TV or radio. Pat Kerwin is absolutely phenomenal. He is outstanding at what he does because he looks at things through a front office executive's eye as well as through a coach's eye and a personnel director's eye. That, to me, is the most valuable way to look at things because that's how they're looking at it upstairs. Okay, the the novice reporter's eye tells me nothing. Okay, because that's the most uneducated eye, the least experienced eye, and that's not going to help me. Okay, I need to be able to put my vision, my lens into the lens of the coach, the general manager, the personnel guy, because I need to understand what is it that they're looking for, that they want to see, that that they are interpreting. Because that is the grade that's going to tell me what's really going on on the field. Seriously. I mean, it would be akin to asking somebody to read a foreign language dictionary. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's happening. If you can't translate it and you don't understand the language, you're not going to be able to come out of it with any substance or context. You're just not. And so that's my biggest problem when I hear about people saying there's conflicting reports and what, what, why is this this way and this says the opposite. Well, it's because if you're not digesting it from the appropriate lens, you have no chance to have an accurate picture. You just don't. Well, at the end of the day, everybody's entitled to their opinion. It doesn't make well, them right. It doesn't make them wrong. And that's true, too. It's their uh, opinion. Uh, everybody will have opinions, and of opinions, course. by definition, are not facts. Yeah, 100%. That's also true, too. I don't anything to that. No, I think that's well said. That's also true, too. Yeah, I mean, it's facts are right or wrong. Opinions, you either agree with them or you disagree with them. So I mean, I'm certainly not reading everybody's Twitter and looking at a daily basis what they're reporting. Personally, I think it's overkill in terms of the reporting out of any OTA, any minicamp. It's not just for the Giants. It's for any team that has a bunch of beat writers. They need to put out content. But I personally couldn't care less the quarterback efficiency from practice to practice. Because, Paul, at the end of the day, listen, it, it's great to see what these guys could do. It's great to see them move around. I take mental notes. Everybody else interprets it differently. You are judged by what you do on game day. At yeah. the end of the day, mm -hmm. your legacy, what you do, is between the lines on Sundays, Mondays, Thursdays, whatever day of the week there's an actual regular season game. People want to have a chatter and they want to have a talk about what went on in a random practice in June. Hey, that's fine. That's great. It gives us here something to talk about in the program. But this is just a message here to fans. Do not get caught up in some random practice because in the big picture of things, 
I don't care whether you thought Daniel Jones had a good practice, he had a bad practice. Until he gets on the field, that's when we separate the men from the boys, Paul. I just answered someone on Twitter before, and because he was asking about, well, what does this all mean? They didn't play any games yet. You could still go 5-11. and 11. The answer is, <laughs> whatever you see now, these grades are hollow. They're hollow grades. Okay, your final one loss record and your performance during the regular season, those are the grades that matter. This is like taking that pretest. You know, yeah, if you were in grammar school, remember in high school you took a pretest before then you took the real one? Or what, what did they the used to call The warm-up act. Remember the SATs when we were going into college? They did have them for you, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, you talk to me sometimes like you were born in 1903 and I was put on this earth 100 years ago. Sometimes I feel but like yes, well, I have an I will remind you of these, of that, these okay. issues. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there yes. was the PSAT and then there was the Correct. SAT. Yeah, the PSAT was to get you used to the right. structure of the SAT. In a way, yeah. this, this is the PSAT. Okay, this is not the determining factor as to what your record's going to be or whether or not you're going to graduate into the playoffs. This is the PSAT. Uh, It's hollow. It doesn't really carry a lot of weight, but you'd rather check all the boxes than not. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it's important to, like I said, observing the players, their competitive spirit, how they're running around. All of that is important. But honestly, if you were to ask me what is the biggest takeaway from an OTA workout, I think anybody who was hurt, Paul, anybody who was sidelined last season, didn't have the opportunity to get on the field like a Paul Perkins, this is extremely valuable for somebody like that so that he could get his legs back underneath him and then when they actually put on the pads and they start hitting each other and running around, you know, then you see, okay, well, what did these workouts do to get him back on track? You know, That, to me, is a key takeaway from this time period. Not necessarily what the regulars who are on the field are doing. You want them to take part. You want them to be active. You want them to get something out of the classroom work. But, you know, sitting here saying, well, Daniel Jones was 8 of 10 on Tuesday, and then all of a sudden he was 3 of 9 on Wednesday. You know, why all of a sudden did things take a downward spiral here? I'm not going to lose sleep over that, nor should I think any fan despite the fact that I understand a lot of people are yearning for information and so forth. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Let's head back to the lines. Scott is in New Mexico. Scott, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Good afternoon, guys. Hi. Good afternoon, too. Um, one of the players that I'm interested in seeing this year, and I think he was underutilized last year basically because of injury, uh, was Evan Ingram. Uh, in 2017 and 15 games, he had 64 catches. Uh, he averaged about 11.3 yards of reception. And in 2018, in only 11 games, uh, he caught 45 and he uh, averaged 12.5. So basically 12 yards every time he touches the ball. Mm-hmm. So do you see the Giants expanding his role a little bit, maybe in three wide receiver sets or using him in the backfield? Because he's really such a dynamic player. And I know injury has sort of sidelined him a little bit. But if he uh, gets to where he needs to go, I don't see where anybody in the league can really cover him one-on-one. So I was curious uh, what your opinions were of expanding the role of Evan Ingram this year. Well, I don't know so much about expanding. I mean, I just think they're going to continue to utilize him. To me, I would go, Scott, to the last four games of 2018. With Odell Beckham not on the field, I mean, look at how much he was targeted compared to earlier in the season against Washington, 
Five targets, three catches for 77 yards. The Tennessee game was targeted 12, which was a season high. He caught eight for 75. Following week at Indy, six targets, caught all of them for 87 yards. And then against Dallas, eight targets, five catches, 81 yards, and a touchdown. I mean, him and Eli were on the same page, and it was consistent. So I think that you can expect... Why is it crazy to think that he can't get anywhere from six to eight targets a game? I don't think that's asking what for too much. What you saw from him in December is the reason they drafted him in the first round a few years ago. Right. And, and, and that was a glimpse of what the potential ceiling is supposed to be for this guy, and maybe even a little higher. But the truth of the matter is, through the first couple of years of his career, because of various circumstances, including injuries, he hasn't given the Giants a lot more flashes of that nature. Uh, right. It's only been one a one month spurt, but that month that month is what the Giants saw when they made him a number one pick. So that's what they're going to expect from him in year three, which, as we always say, is supposed to be the breakout year for a player. So let's see right. it. Yeah, do you compare him to uh, a tight end like George Kittle in San no, Francisco? Not at uh, all. Similar type of athlete. Not even close. George George Kittle is a much more all around guy, much better blocker. Well, and okay. I I, th- I don't think Kittle would line up as a wide receiver. No. I think Evan Ingram has the capability to do that. Correct. I would not put Kittle in that department. Kittle's different, an excellent tight end, though. Different style yeah. of player. Okay. Uh, my last question, and again, I can take this off the air. Um, I know, Lance, you're very high on uh, making sure teams have depth. As you look at the position groups right now, it looks like the Giants have improved in almost every area, but is there one specific group you think that still requires more players or as you like to say more depth at the position and i'll take your answers off the air guys thanks scott appreciate the phone call thanks so much Wayne. i mean i think it's a really good question which position perhaps needs more work well i think the offensive line has come a long way let's focus on the ones that i think have made strides paul because of what you and i have talked about on multiple shows the competition at the center position would, to me, automatically give you depth because whoever loses that becomes a center-slash-guard. I think there's some more competition at the tackle spots overall, much more so than I've seen over the last few seasons. So I think probably the one area that has made the huge stride in the depth department, I think offensive line should top that list or come close to topping that list. Well, see, for me, the Giants have had enough trouble trying to reconstruct their roster to put together a starting unit on both sides of the ball that can compete for a possible playoff spot. Well, to do that, you're going to be behind the eight ball in terms of adding depth at a number of different spots on the team. And I think that's where the Giants are right now. They're trying to put a 22-man starting unit on the field that can fight for a playoff spot in December. I think they are getting real close to that, if not there. I really believe that. But, but, The depth weakness is a problem. You don't know what the back of the depth chart is along each of the trenches. You don't know what it's going to be at uh, at wide receiver. You don't know what the depth is going to be at linebacker. You know you're not you're not sure the depth in the secondary. You know you got a lot of a bunch of young guys who look like they got a lot of potential. But when you say depth, depth says to me, even if the guy isn't good enough to be a high quality starter, depth says to me. He has proven that he's a capable player and can step in if you need him. Well, the Giants have very few spots on their roster, okay? 
where they really have what you would call solid depth that they know that if they got to go to the bench for two or three weeks at a time, they can for sure count on a kid or a veteran who is proven to do that job. Michael Thomas is depth. Wayne Goldman is depth. You know, Red well, Ellison. Perkins, if he makes his team, is depth. Yeah. If you want to Rod consider, Smith is another guy. I don't think Smith makes it, but well, I mean, if has you want experience. To, if you want to consider Ellison as depth behind Ingram, okay, they got depth at tight end, um, depth at safety with Michael Thomas, but but do you have proven depth at corner? No. Do you have proven depth at linebacker? No. Do you have proven depth at, uh, along the defensive line? Not really. You got a bunch of young guys. Well, you don't know for sure what Macintosh is. You don't know that. So that's the answer to the question. It's, it, there's, there's not much in terms of widespread proven depth. It doesn't exist. But that's where this the stage that this team is in right now. They're trying to become a playoff team with their starting 22. Depth is awesome. But you've got to be in a further advanced stage in your redevelopment before you can start talking about having a lot of depth. Yeah, I mean, I look at depth the same way you do, Paul. I think if you've got a number of veterans or players that have had experience getting on the field, not necessarily just being around on rosters, and offensive line, as I mentioned, you may not have a lot of proven depth, but I think compared to where they were over the last two seasons, sure. I look at that as improvement. Sure. I like the depth at wide receiver, and I think it's much more proven than the offensive line. See, that would be the position that I would probably put right neck and neck, wide receiver, offensive line, because to your point, if Shepard got hurt, if Golden Tate got hurt, I'd feel pretty good with who they would have to turn to. The Cody Latimers, the Corey Coleman's, the Russell Shepard's, I, I wouldn't necessarily... Nobody's saying they're Pro Bowl players. That's right, not my point. Right. It's just, you know at least you put them out on the field. They can run good routes. Yeah, they can make plays. Yeah, I, 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 guess, I that, guess... That's what I'm looking for. I guess I would feel receiving depth is probably okay. one of the stronger depth chart places on the team, especially considering the other ones that are so thin. Yeah, cornerback, you're right. A lot of youth there. So you've got volume. But see, volume and depth are two different things. They're Paul. totally different so, things. So uh, corner, you have volume. Corner, you don't necessarily have depth. And I agree with you. To me, to answer the question that Scott posed, linebacker would be the position where I think there's room for improvement in having sole depth. Because, you know, you look at some of the players on the back end that are going to be competing, and there's just, there's not a lot of, hey, they've been there and done that. You know, Ryan Connolly's a rookie. Tay Davis is still a young player. Uh, B.J. Goodson is also a young player. Remember, he's dealt with some injuries. So, you know, we're talking about Alec Ogletree. And I'm talking about the interior guys right now that I'm focusing on. But outside of him, right, Paul, you've got a lot of unproven commodities or young guys that just may have flashed. And then on the outside, Lorenzo Carter, still a young player. Okay, Marcus Golden, not far removed from a torn ACL. Kareem Martin, we talked about. Avery Moss. Those are the linebackers. Here's here's how you want to grade this. And I guess, Scott, take this take this to heart because this is the this is the crux of everything we're talking about in this call. When you look at the second and third string guys on the depth chart, basically the second half of your roster, okay? If you've got guys who are proven and you feel very comfortable with, then you know what? You're an upper echelon team. If you have a bunch of guys there, quantity, and you think they could be answers, well, now you're a middle-of-the-pack team. If you have a bunch of guys on the back end of your roster who are just there holding spots because you have nobody else and they're not really any good, but you don't have anybody else to plug in there, 
Well, now you're in the bottom part of the National Football League. That's where the Giants have been mostly in recent years. They've had guys just holding spots on the roster because there hasn't been enough competition or enough of players who you could at least say, you know what, maybe he's good enough. Well, now they're at that level where they've got a bunch of players all over the roster that you're saying to yourself, you know what, maybe he's good enough to play. That's what separates the Giants from being a bottom feeder. That's why they're a better team. That's why they're not a three-win team. That's why they're not a five-win team. This is a much more competitive team because they've come out of that third level. They've gotten into the middle level now. Let's head back to the phone lines. We have Eric, who is in Fargo, and he joins us here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Eric? Hey, I got a question for you, uh, Paul Bettino. Yeah. Um, which uh, rookie class uh, are you looking forward to seeing in the minicamp in the uh, Giants? Well, I mean, seven guys were drafted out of the ten players on defense. So, obviously, any of those guys are going to be very important because they'll need some immediate contributions. But, I mean, when you look at the first-round picks, and you know Jones is, is going to be on the shelf for a while until Eli gives up that, that throne, you look at Lawrence and you look at Baker. You know, and then, of course, you look, you look at, at Zimenez and you look at Love and you're like, you know what? For those first five picks that the Giants took in this draft, they should be significant contributors right away. So I guess I'm excited about all four of those guys. All right. Okay, and then my last question is for you. Do you think this is going to be Eli's last ride with the Giants? I mean, it's certainly possible, but it's equally possible that he comes back for another season. It all depends how the circumstances play out. I don't think anybody knows for sure right now how it's going to go. And I think anybody who tells you otherwise is a fool because it's 50-50. It's literally flip of a coin. If things go right, Eli could very well be back for another year. If things don't go right, he could very well be be done at the end of the season. This could go either way. It's 50-50. Okay. Hey, by the way, you guys are doing an awesome job. Thank you, guys. All right, Eric. Appreciate the phone call. And that's not a cop-out. I mean, there are just too many things that could happen. Well, of course. Uh, here's the way that you have to view it. Because I have questions all the time that are posed to me on Twitter about, you know, Daniel Jones and starting him in 2020. Eli Manning, as of right now, is not under contract beyond the 2019 season. So you can speculate all you want. Until that changes, it is what it is. He's got one year remaining on his contract. If the Giants don't give him an extension before the season ends, then nothing's going to change with respect to the conversation. He has to be given an extension for us to start to speculate and talk about him being here for another season. I think on the surface right now, Eli Manning is here for one year. That's just based on the facts that we can only operate. Depending on how this season plays out, is there more than a good enough chance that they give him an extension? Yes, I think that's a reasonable assumption. But operating right now, he has one year remaining on his contract. So until that changes, I don't think it's crazy to start thinking about the future beyond 2019. Let's head back to the phone lines, and we check in with Len in Columbia, Maryland. Len, what's happening? Hey, guys. How you doing? You're right, Len. Hey, Len. What do you have for us? Well, you know, just talking about Eli for a second, this wasn't really what I called up about. But here, here's here's my nightmare with regard to the end of Eli's career with us. We get to game 16 this year. Eli plays the first series and comes off the field to a standing ovation. I just don't want to see it end that way. But I'm afraid it may not be that end, but it's going to be something like that. It's really 
really going to be tough. I'm not blaming the Giants for anything here. I'm just saying it's really a tough situation with Eli. Um, Paul, I, I agree with you. This 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 team appears to to be better. I mean, I get the feeling there's some better people on this team now, and maybe it's the way it should be. You know, we're in the second year of the Gettleman era, and and we should be getting better. The second year of the Shermer era, everything should be getting better. Sure, but you know, like. Geez, I, I just keep thinking other teams are getting better too, Paul. I mean, you know, I'm I'm wondering how much better. It's nice to get better, but you know, are we making up ground on those teams in our division? You won't know till you start playing, Len. That's the bottom yeah, line. Well, that's, that's, shirts and only shorts. One way to find out, you got to go out there and play. That's, Shirt, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shirts absolutely. and shorts are, are hollow grades. You know, we could we could tell you that the boxes are being checked right now, and that's better than not checking them. But it still yeah. doesn't mean a whole lot until they get on the field in September. Yeah, yeah. In the end, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the wide receivers. Um, I, I guess maybe when I see him out on the field and see him doing some things, I just, I'm, I'm just a little concerned about what we've, what we've really got there at wide receiver. I know, Lance, you, you feel like you, you feel like there, there is a little bit of depth there. Um, I, I just, you know, I just keep thinking back to the end of last year, and 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 uh, you know, he's a great athlete, and uh, but geez, we started Dante Fowler. I mean, holy cow! Dante Fowler, you ain't Benny Fowler. You're talking about Dante Fowler's yeah, on the Benny. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Former pass rusher of the Jaguars now with the Rams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wide receiver. And yeah, I keep Benny thinking, Fowler. Holy cow! That's that's just. I take Dante you know, Fowler. You want to give him to me? I don't know if he's a great wide receiver. Though, but, yeah. games. I, I just don't. Well, but but here's here's where I'm looking at it, Len. I'm looking at it. First of all, Cody Latimer barely played last season because remember he was sidelined. He was yeah. on IR. But the games yeah. that he did play, he actually made plays. So if he's fully healthy, okay, that's another guy that now you turn to. You know what you're getting out of Sterling Shepard? We've seen him enough that hopefully the opportunity is going to be there for him to maybe step it up a notch, but you know at least what you're going to get out of Sterling Shepard. Golden Tate's a proven veteran. I think it's fair to say you know what you're going to get out of Golden Tate. Okay, so th- those are three guys. Then you look at, okay, Darius Slayton is a young guy. Time will tell. Corey Coleman, I, I think has an unbelievable opportunity in front of him. I-, I-, I keep saying this every program because if Coleman is as hungry as he should be, not only is there an opportunity to make a special team indent on this squad, but I think that that number three wide receiver job is for the taking, and his name is very much in the mix. So there's another guy who's not far removed from being a first-round pick who still has all the upside in the world. I, I don't think we're turning in the opposite direction where he could surprise a lot of people. So, you know, I named you five guys. I'll, I'll throw in Russell Shepard, too. Russell Shepard, I thought, also made plays last season when guys got hurt. He caught the touchdown from Odell Beckham. He also caught another touchdown in the Redskins game. He's more than capable of stepping up. Len, you know the problem here? It's well, not a well, complete wide-receiving core. It's just not. It, 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 it's 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 one that's got a lot of questions and doubts, but does have yeah. at least some potential answers that can make you functional. But there are two things missing. They don't have the skyscraper, okay, the Plexico Burris type. They don't have one of those in that room unless a guy like Reggie White, who's at 6'3", out of Monmouth, Makes it turns too. out to yeah. be you know a, a great training camp addition and maybe steals a spot. But they don't have a skyscraper who's proven, and they don't have a burner who's proven. Corey Coleman is still a question. Darius Slayton is obviously a question. So so those are two things that if you said to me, okay, show me a a Super Bowl contending wide receivers room. Well, those two elements are going to be in that room. Right now, 
the Giants don't have those elements. It doesn't mean they can't function to be a playoff team, but they don't have those two things. You know, probably a little late to be talking about this, but, you know, you look at last year's uh, receiving core and you look at the numbers. I mean, Beckham had 77 in 12 games. He's gone. Shepard had 66. Just the wide receivers. I'm not talking about anybody else right. now. Yeah. You know, you put together the next five or six guys that were on the roster, maybe for a few games, maybe the whole season. I know some guys were injured, but I think the rest of them had about 45 catches. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's five or six guys. I mean, well, in any event, just, just to move on to something else, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the wide receivers. I mean, there's, guys, there's a lot of yardage to be made up with Beckham not on this team. Yeah, but to me, the way you make up for that, Len, also is Evan Engram, who was sidelined at times last yeah. season. You expect him to get on the field, hopefully stay healthy. His numbers increase. So that's how partially you make up for it. You know, Saquon Barkley, I'm sure they're going to find different ways to utilize him. That's another yeah. way Len, that you can also make you know, up for. Let me, let me offer one thing to you, Len, that may be of some comfort, okay? Yeah. Golden yes. Tate is basically Ike Hilliard II, okay? Yes. And and you saw how productive the Giants' offense could be with I Kill You. Heck, they went to a Super Bowl in 2000 with him. Okay? Golden Tate is that kind of guy. He's a third-down monster. He's a terrific possession receiver, smart, tough, a route runner, a guy who will help block for the run off of the edge and downfield. He yeah. fills the Ike Hilliard role. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean he's got to be a Pro Bowl receiver to be productive and functional and help you win games. Well, he does if we want to, if we want to replace what we had last year. No, this is, don't, don't oh. do that. Don't do that. Len, Len, this isn't about matching last year's numbers or replacing guys and putting guys in those shoes. That's not what this is about. This is about putting guys on the field as a unit who are going to be functional enough to get done what you wish to get done. That's what this is about. Forget last year. Well, Take Beckham's numbers and flush them down the toilet. They mean nothing. They mean nothing. Well, what they do mean, Paul, if you put all the numbers together from scrimmage, which was not a lot, the passing yardage, I think it was about 100 yards total. We're talking about 1,400 yards, Paul. I understand that. But but that's not do, – do, look, if you want to match last year's numbers, you're 5-11. and you're five and 11. I mean, seriously, don't yeah, don't play that game. Well, don't, but don't play that game, well, Len. Don't play that do game. That we can't do that again. Paul. Okay, yeah. right. I mean, so your defense don't, is part of that too, though. Right. So don't yeah. play that game. It's not about matching last year's numbers. It's about getting better as a football team. And your numbers don't have to match last year's numbers to be a better team and win more games. They don't. Well, and, and Len, first of all, yeah. you're talking about 1,400 yards from scrimmage. Golden Tate is a borderline 1,000 yard guy. So if Golden Tate, let's say, gives me 900 yards, Evan Engram, who I mentioned was not fully healthy last year, I can easily get perhaps an sure. additional, you know, 350 okay. out of him. Before you know it, we're, we're at 1,400. What I if mean, Corey Coleman gives yeah. you yeah. 500 yards? So, I mean, that's well, not, me, that's me, not an unbelievable Lance, number here. Give me, give, me some, give me some numbers. What, what do you expect from Golden Tate? I think Golden Tate is going to – I was actually – we were asked this question. I think it was a fact or fiction on Giants.com. I, I'm looking at him – in that 900, 950 ballpark, I think he's capable of. I'm not sold that he's going to get 1,000, but when you look at what he did with the Lions, three of his last four full seasons with the Lions, and the Lions yeah. had a lot of other talent around him. You know, they had yeah. Calvin Johnson, they had some other guys. It wasn't like he was just the man. He, he yeah. finished with 1,000. I, I could see him getting you in guys that are, 900 you guys to 950. Are totally missing I, the I point. I know systems can help you, Lance. Yeah. 
But tell me about the first half of the season. What happened in Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah well, you're totally missing well, the in, point. He was in Philly the second half of the season. Yeah, correct. Not the first half. Correct. He was traded but, mid-year. Okay, yeah. But yeah, you're so both sorry. missing the point. Yeah. Golden Tate's value to the Giants is going to be third down conversions. Forget about his total yardage. Third down conversions, move the sticks, and allow the Giants to do what they want to do. Len, that's the number you want to look at. His we third get, down well, conversions. Lance said earlier in the show, Paul, we got we already got Shepard to do that. I, I mean, we got. I thought Shepard was our third down guy coming coming out of the slot. I, I mean, I. No. You know, a lot of people have said, well, you really got the same kind of receiver. I don't necessarily believe that, but I think we're expecting too much from Golden Tate. We really are. Lance, let me ask you another question. I'm going to give you a philosophy, and tell me where I'm, if you think I'm wrong on this. Here's the philosophy. Former starters on your team don't make good backups on your team. Well, I mean, you're talking about the Giants specifically. We'll let you go on that note, Len. Appreciate the phone call. We'll, we'll, we'll answer that question. I wouldn't make it so general that former starters don't make good backups. I think it depends on where that former starter is in his career. I think if you look at some former starters, when they get to the tail end of their career, if they're sold on, hey, you're going to be that complimentary guy, we're going to bring you in on third down pass rushing situations, for example, if you're a pass rusher, some guys welcome that and they thrive in those positions. So I, I, I wouldn't generalize it to say that a guy who started previously can't thrive in a situation as a backup role. No, you're, no. you're 100% correct. Look at the 1990 Giants. They had a bunch of reclamation projects who were on the, on the back end of their careers were former starters and the supplemented a good team and made them a championship team. So, no, I totally disagree with Len on that Yeah, I, I would totally. not read too much into that. All right, we're going to close up the show with one last caller. Shamari is in Alabama. Shamari, welcome to the program. What do you got for us? Hey, how you doing, guys? Hi. Uh, All right, Shamari. Hey, I, I called to talk about uh, Dave Gettleman, and I just want to say that he gets it. He knows what's going on in the league. It's also a copycat league, but at the end of the day, you play to win the division. And that's what he built this team to do, win the division. Okay, so let's start off with our uh, defensive line with uh, Dexter Lawrence, uh, Dalvin Tomlinson, B.J. Hill. Okay, our division is a run-heavy division. So let's just stop the run. And we all, and the division itself is pretty, uh, I wouldn't say pretty average as far as receiver core. And most of the quarterbacks in our division rely on the running game. So let's just plug up the run and make these quarterbacks that are really don't have uh, even close to as much experience as, as our quarterback, Eli Manning. So um, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes if you take that running game away from them. And when I say Gettleman gets it and, you know, that uh, statement of cultural change is, you know, people people think too far out the box with it. Let's look at the Saints and let's look at the Redskins, okay? You know, because I'm, I'm, I stay in a state that's a big SEC conference and I look at the Redskins, how they loaded up with Alabama players. And that's a culture change. You know, when you when you college teammates with certain players and you gain that brotherhood, that camaraderie, you actually work harder together, you play together. It's mm -hmm. the same thing with the Saints with when they loaded up with Ohio State Buckeyes. That's why I always felt like it was a win-win situation with uh, Eli Apple trade. He wasn't happy in New York, and he went to New Orleans, and he, 
gained that brotherhood back and became a better player overall. It's the same thing with us. We loaded up with Georgia Bulldogs and, um, you know, Clemson Tigers, people that, 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 love, that love the school that they play for. And they're going to love playing besides people that believe the same things they did. They come from winning programs. And that's what I mean. We play to win the division. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fair point. I, I think every team is playing to win the division. I don't well, think the yeah. Giants are on an island all by themselves. I, I think it's fair to say that they want to stop the run. There's no doubt about it. I also wouldn't dismiss and, and appreciate the phone call, Shamari. Thanks for weighing in. The other quarterbacks in the division, I think Carson Wentz is more than capable of doing damage with his arm, despite the fact that he doesn't have a great deal of experience. And I, I think the Eagles have a lot of talent around him. So, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily categorize the NFC East as just a run-heavy league. I think good teams start with the run and build off of that. And that's why you've seen the Cowboys and the Eagles specifically recently have success because they have had strong running games. But Mari Cooper, the acquisition of him changed Dallas' season. And you can even make the argument Zach Ertz and Golden Tate, that combo in the second half of the season also helped the Eagles do wonders too in recent history. All right, that is going to wrap things up for us here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be back up and running Wednesday and Thursday again, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, special time because of the change in the schedule during mandatory minicamp. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. We'll speak to you tomorrow right here on Giants.com. Have a good one.